Hi, I'm Roger Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with David Frum. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas for The Hub. In Conversation with David Frum is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for more great insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. We're having this conversation the morning after former President Trump was indicted and pled not guilty to 34 criminal charges. It seemed impossible to talk about anything else. We'll try to offer a different perspective, though, about the broader implications of these developments and what they mean for U.S. politics in general and the Republican Party in particular. David, thanks as always for joining me. Thank you. Let's start with the big picture, if that's okay. President Trump is the first former U.S. president to ever be indicted. How significant is this as a political moment? How should we think about it? As a political moment, it's it's very large. Hard to imagine anything larger, but also um, un- unpredictable. Um, that uh, And there are many places to start. But one of the things I think it is an example of is how the wedge is widening between where the base of the Republican Party is and where the voters they most need uh, to get are. Um, there's another development yesterday that happened at the same time, and that was um, the election of a liberal chief justice to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, and this is something that's going to sound like very small potatoes compared to the Trump indictment, but it's it's really not because Trump is the product of a system of conservative minority rule that has dominated the United States since the Obama years. And conservatives leverage less of the vote to more of the political power. And the, the key, the thing that makes that all possible is um, their super gerrymander in the state of Wisconsin, uh, which is. Um, probably the most extreme, along with North Carolina, one of the most extremely gerrymandered states in the country, and probably the mo- and certainly the most gerrymandered out of the old Confederacy. Um, in Wisconsin, Republicans get consistently less than fifty percent of the vote, and they turn that into sometimes as many as two thirds of the seats in the state legislature, and that's what allows them to do the mischief that Donald Trump was counting on in in twenty twenty. That. You basically you turn the key on the Wisconsin Supreme Court, you turn the key on the Wisconsin state legislature, you turn the key on the Wisconsin gerrymander, you turn the key on the national gerrymander, you turn the key on Trump. Um, and so you've got a party that is more and more radical in a country that is more and more fed up with that radicalism. And that's the political effect. The counterweight to that is I don't think this indictment is going to look very good a week from now. Um, and that is going to have... Um, also powerful political effects. I promise we'll come to the implications for the Republican Party because it's something that interests me and I think our listeners and viewers a great deal. But let's just stay on the indictment for a moment. What would you say to the argument, David, that the New York District Attorney is being politically reckless by pursuing these charges and that greater prudence would have led him not to go down this route, just as the Biden administration's Department of Justice ultimately decided? I think the answer to that is uh, that argument is is correct. Um, 
what, from the moment the news of the indictment broke or the pending indictment broke, I, I withheld a lot of comment because um, I, I could see a lot of different legal possibilities. I didn't know what they would have. And, I, and while there was a lot of early comment that this looked reckless, I thought there might be more to it. And what I thought in particular was, um, look, the system of organized payoffs and working with the National Enquirer that Trump did is disgusting. He's a sleazeball. Um, he shouldn't be president. Um, and along the way, he, in order to cover it up, not from his wife and children because they're as sleazy as he is and they don't care, um, but in order to um, preserve the last shred of deniability on voters who had already overlooked the Stormy Daniel case because his voters Many of them are also very sleazy. Um, in order to do all of that, he fabricated some business documents. I don't know. That doesn't sound like much of a case. I, I mean, it's technically illegal, obviously. And if you're if you're a typical business owner and you're caught, you'll be in trouble. But a typical business owner wouldn't be caught because it wouldn't be worth anybody's time to go look. Um, so, but the thing I withheld was maybe what they're building toward is that he then used this fabrication for one of his patented tax frauds, where he created false invoices and deducted things from his taxes that weren't deductible. But there's no such allegation in the indictment. Um, they there's a casual one point, a casual reference to to a tax invoice, but it looks like Michael Cohen's tax problems, not not Trump's. They had in mind. So yeah, it's technically. Um, a, a high misdemeanor or a low felony. But I'll pause here. But I, 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 when you, it, it's very much like Bill Clinton committed some technical high misdemeanors or low felonies during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. But the country said, you know what, basically the situation here looks disgusting, but non-criminal. And we don't approve of you going after it in a criminal way. There may be some of that reaction to this Trump prosecution. The final question on the indictment before we invariably get into the politics, I have to ask the obvious question. Is there reason to believe that a conviction is credible? And if so, do you have a sense of the possible legal implications for the former president? My guess is they're going to be underwhelming. Um, I, I, I think that this case, um, it may not do, I mean, because basically, although there are multiple counts, there's one offense. And the offense is that um, in order to reimburse Michael Cohen for his payoffs to at least three people, like I, I guess Cohen paid off two and the National Enquirer paid off one, if I have that right. But in order to re reimburse his then lawyer, uh, Trump created false invoices inside the Trump Corporation and then paid the lawyer, actually the reimbursed him and then paid a fee on top of it and designated as, as legal expenses. So that's, that's the falsification. There no, there's no question here of defrauding other investors because there aren't any. There is no question of bank fraud because this came out of cash. And, and it, they're not making a claim of, of tax fraud. Although, again, that's a big question mark and why they didn't, I don't know. Maybe he didn't deduct it. That seems unlikely. Maybe it's a federal matter. That seems more likely, but they're, they're not acting on it. So there's one, uh, there's one crime and it may end up being whittled down to misdemeanor counts even before it goes to the jury. So, and, and it seems very unlikely that even if he's convicted, there's going to be a, a serious sanction. And he may, as I say, he may be convicted of misdemeanors, in which case, you know, that's going to be easy to explain away in, in the electorate. There's a conventional view that the indictment has been good politics for President Trump. It's caused Republican voters to rally around him as a victim of a so-called Democratic witch hunt. That argument is fine as it goes, but we still have the prospect of a criminal trial in the middle of the Republican primary over claims that the president falsified records to pay off a porn star with whom he had sex after his wife gave birth to their son. Isn't there some risk that Republican voters, particularly religious ones, 
come to find the whole episode unseemly and immoral? Or are they just tribal at this point? I think we, I think we've done a lot of real world experiments on that question, and we've got the answer. They are that tribal. Now there may be other indictments coming um, for other offenses that are are more centrally political. But uh, the, uh, as to your, I think the, the chief political effect is um, the Republican Party is becoming more and more an island off the coast of America, and um, that it is more and more defensive, angry, militant, um, uh, un unwilling. Um, unwilling to, uh, disdainful of the values of contemporary society, of, of mainstream society. There's a very interesting book um, about the career of James Michael Curley, who was um, mayor of Boston and then governor of Massachusetts in the early 1930s, called The Rascal King. And um, if you know anything about Massachusetts politics, you know that for a long time it was riven by antagonism between Irish Catholic um, minorities and Yankee Protestant majorities. And Curley made himself the, the chieftain of the Irish Catholic minority, and he got elected mayor of Boston, and he was a flagrant crook, just a flagrant crook. And uh, then he became governor of Massachusetts. He, had, he ended up going to prison for his flagrant crookedness, and he got reelected from prison because his, his voters said, even if he took bribes, he didn't steal from us, he stole from you. Um, and he represents us. And in a way, and he splashed around some of the money among us. And the us-you distinction matters a lot more than the right-wrong distinction. And that's also Trump's message. Us, us versus you matters a lot more than right versus wrong. And he's going, to, he's going to use that. And again, it won't work for the country because there's a lot more of you than there are of us. Uh, a lot. And as, that's what the Wisconsin election showed. The problem with urbanism and this kind of new kind of right-wing authoritarianism is it, it, it doesn't, the problem, the, its own internal technical challenge is that it's essentially a nonviolent uh, process. Um, and so that means that while it can shave majorities at the margins, if the majority is big enough, it will lose and have to give up power. And uh, what is happening in the United States is the majority is mobilizing and partly because of abortion, partly because of disgust with Trump, but the, and the majority is the majority. And Wisconsin is going to go blue. Uh, there, um, in, Wisconsin, in North Carolina, the other gerrymandered state, we saw the same day an outrageous action where a Democratic member of the state legislature flipped from a very pro-democratic state, flip parties to give the Republicans back a two-thirds majority of the legislature. And there are questions about what exactly motivated that representative. But what you're seeing there is the drama of minority rule bumping up against majority opinion. And in the end, I think the weight of gravity says the minority in a country like the United States cannot indefinitely prevail. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our free weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive complimentary email newsletter right now at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. I would just say in parentheses that we spoke to you several months ago in the aftermath of the midterm elections, which strikes me as another proof point of the electoral consequences of the Republican Party um, heading down this path, even though it ought to have 
um, compelling arguments um, uh, against the, the Biden administration and uh, some of the, the economic and, and social consequences of its of its policy choices. You wrote a couple of times on the subject for the Atlantic last week, David, in anticipation of the indictment. I, I'd strongly encourage listeners and viewers to check out your articles. In them, you make the case that this latest development represents another opportunity for Republican leaders to disavow themselves of Trump and start to recover their party from his grip. Is there any reason to think that's possible? And if not, why not? Well, it's going to happen sooner or later. Um, and my view of life is, look, after you touch the hot stove, you're never going to do it again. So why not, after you touch the hot stove for the fourth time, you're certainly never going to do it. So why not like take the lesson from the first two or three times that you touch the hot stove and, and sort of figure it out? Um, you know, uh, Warren Buffett has, I think it's attributed to him a line, it's good to learn from experience, but it's better to learn from other people's experience. Uh, so, like, you can see this is coming. It's going nowhere good. And um, obviously the right thing for the Republican Party to do is to turn to somebody else. Ron DeSantis, who's a flawed candidate in his own way, but he's not indicted. That's something. Um, he makes uh, – why not turn to him or somebody else? Uh, Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, Tim Scott, the senator from, uh, from uh, South Carolina, uh, Nikki Haley. Why not – Mike Pompeo is an intelligent man. Why, why not try somebody else? And, and even if you lose with them, you lose with uh, – uh, you lose on, on points, not on revulsion. But it does seem the party is institutional. There's no committee. There's no one in charge. And so it can't happen. Yeah, let me follow up on your answer. I sort of get why it may not be in the narrow political interests of some Republican presidential aspirants to get into a direct conflict with the former president. But he never won large majorities in the 2016 Republican primary. In a crowded field, isn't there a case for someone to differentiate is the never Trump candidate? But there is a huge collective action problem here. Yes, um, there is such a case. But um I remember there was an Onion article many years ago that said 95% of Americans are in favor of, of other people taking transit more. <laughs> and I think that's, yeah, you go fight them and I will inherit the wreckage. That's what everybody is thinking. Somebody else will will go fight them and, and then I will inherit the wreckage. Uh, and the person who ought to do it is the runner up. I mean, in a way, and um, I mean, the whole, this is where DeSantis is so vulnerable in the Trump contest, that DeSantis's message to Republicans is, I'm a tough guy. I'm a really tough guy. I fight Disney. I fight drag queens. Um, I fight um, ev I fight everybody. Uh, not Trump. I won't fight him. In fact, when he comes and attacks me, I smile and take it. And Trump has literally accused, literally accused um, DeSantis of being um, someone who uses alcohol to induce teenage girls, underage girls to have sex with him. And that's an especially harsh blow because DeSantis's method is to accuse everybody else of exactly that. So Trump said that all that thing you're saying about Disney, I say you did it, which is a classic Trump move. And DeSantis just said, you know, that's hilarious that he. Well, when you if you if you had the fortitude to go attack him, that's not how he would reply to you. And so I, I get that the calculation that brings DeSantis to that conclusion. But of course, the effect is that he just looks like a bully. He doesn't he looks weak and a bully. Like, oh, okay, the drag queens you'll fight, Trump you won't. If there's been a common theme to these conversations that we've had, David, over the past year and so, approaching now uh, 30 episodes of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, 
it's been that a positive aspirational conservatism could be a significant political force in Canada, the US and, and elsewhere across the Anglosphere. The challenge, of course, is at least in, in the US, the party that would ostensibly be the vehicle of such a positive aspirational conservatism has essentially abandoned mourning in America for American carnage. So, you know, setting aside Trump and just going to the area or the idea, the notion of ideas, how does the Republican Party break out of this spiral? How does it get back to a Reagan outlook and worldview? You, you address the problems that you have. And, and when we talked about aspirational, that doesn't mean, lot, you know, ignoring the, some of the dark realities of life. Um, I was in Toronto for the two days before you and I spoke. And on one of the days, I, I was on the subway for a bit. Early that day, there's a tweet from John Moore, the Toronto broadcaster, friend of ours, that he had been at the College Street station and, and, and some person obviously impaired by drugs had just thrown a punch at him. And fortunately, Moore had evaded the punch and not been hurt. I, you know, so I, I know this and that that's terrible. Things are really getting out of hand. Um, I'm on the subway 90 minutes later and our subway car bypasses Queen Street Station. To those of you who don't know, live in Toronto, that's a major station. Just you know, goes through it without opening the door because there had been an attack on a TDC employee, on a Trans Transit Commission employee, uniform personnel by another one of these deranged people. And they were and they didn't want that person to jump onto the car. And so they kept the doors closed. So like within 90 minutes, I personally experienced at secondhand, um, you know, two, two of these violent incidents on a subway system that was once the safest in North America, one of the safest in the world. Um, so there are messages of public safety and in inflation, um, uh, cutting back the expansion of government that happened during COVID. There's lots of work to do, but you need to align yourself um, with the values and interests and sympathy um, of, of the people for whom you're acting. That's the mission. And the, the problem for conservative parties is because conservative parties have historically um, been grounded in rural areas, because in so many democracies, uh, the system tends to overweight rural votes. There's a tendency for the conservative party to develop habits of, minor, of minority rule. Um, and as a tiny little plus factor that can sometimes be you know, pol politically advantageous in the short term. But seriously, what it does is it, it, it alienates you from um, the sources of political consent. And even more troublingly, in our era where the, so much of the economic activity and dynamism happens to come from the big metropolitan areas, it cuts you off from the future of your country. And here's a, a point I would, maybe, maybe this is a place to end. Um, I did a study of the electoral map of, um, 1924, the, the Coolidge election. Um, and what was striking was not just that Calvin Coolidge, a very conservative candidate, won a big election, but he his majority was based in the most dynamic sections of the country. Um, he, he won 50% of the vote of the state of New York, the financial capital of the United States. He won 60% of the vote in the state of Pennsylvania, which was then the industrial heartland of the United States at a time when industry was everything. And he won 70% of the vote in Michigan, which was the Silicon Valley of its day, where the new industries of cars and radios were developing. He was as, you know, as, as fusty as an individual as he might be, he was a candidate of a new America. And his opponents were rooted in rural America and in, in the America that used to be, in nostalgic America. Um, so it's not that you have to be 
happy, clappy, sun, sunshiny all the time. There are real, there, that you know, the restoration of public order after the opioid epidemic and after um, and after COVID, that's that's a, 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 a task for hard-faced people and for grim realism about what human nature is really like and for some trade-offs, which is, you, you know, at some level, um, you can't put the interests of um, these, these troubled people ahead of the interests of every commuter on, on the subway. But it does require you to be aligned with where the people are. And that's and the problem with conservative parties in general and the Republican Party in general is that because of their social basis, they are drifting away from people as they are. Just a ton of insight there, David. It reminds me of the apocryphal Reagan line. I don't want to go back to the past. I want to go back to the past way of thinking about the future. And I think it is a good reminder that conservative parties can't forget the future when they're thinking and talking about governance and public policy. David, this is a, a great conversation, as it always is. I want to thank you for joining me, and I, I look forward to catching up, as no doubt our listeners and viewers do, in a couple of weeks. See you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with David Frum, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews, so please leave us one. And a friendly reminder that you can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada or go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring David Frum are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. <laughs>